This is Pop of Culture on IPR. This week, we focus on expanding audiences across the arts. We do a really good job at making it feel exclusive. And I think in the past, that may have been what our audiences wanted, but I don't think that's what they want anymore. I think they want to feel at home. What are we doing to create programs like we have coming up this spring that are bringing in new audiences so that they can experience truly the beauty and magic of orchestral music, maybe for the first time. All that and more coming up on Pop of Culture on IPR. Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's arts partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. From Indiana Public Radio, welcome to Pop of Culture. I'm Kara Duquette. And I'm Jen Blackmer. We begin this week with a conversation about the future of classical music. Joining us now is Katie Morgan-Perez. Katie is the Executive Director with Orchestra Indiana. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Katie, let's talk a little bit. Orchestra Indiana uh, is, is sort of a new nomenclature, right? So for folks that don't know a lot about the history of or- Orchestra Indiana, can you just talk a little bit about the organization, what you do? Obviously, it's orchestral music, right? And a little about the history. Yeah, so back in, I believe, March of 2022, and and maybe the year leading up to that, uh, the Orchestra Indiana Board of Directors, which at the time uh, was the Muncie Symphony Orchestra and the Marion Philharmonic Orchestra's Boards of Directors, made the decision to merge those two organizations into one orchestra that would be serving more than just specifically the city of Muncie or the city of Marion, but rather all of East Central Indiana and and taking uh, those musicians from both groups, which there was quite a bit of overlap in this community, in these two communities for that, and expanding who they were serving in that way. So Orchestra Indiana is made up of musicians and programming that has in both communities 60 to nearly 80 years of of groundwork laid and just building upon that um, post-pandemic when arts organizations across the country began to struggle, this was an opportunity to strengthen both of those two organizations into one. And, you know, one of the challenges I hear is, is I've talked to folks who are in in your business, if you will, that, you know, things have, the audience has kind of shifted and traditional orchestral classical music, as you might think of it, right, is is something where it's, it's hard to attract audiences just in general to live performances, period, no matter right. what your performance Absolutely. is. But then also you, you're seeing a change in audience tastes to some degree. And so you're thinking about like, how do we diversify the kinds of music we play? You want to keep your existing audience, but you right. also need to find folks who will be there for you and grow the audience. So how do you balance that from uh, your perspective? Right. I think that's the greatest challenge facing orchestras, community orchestras across the country. Um, how are we engaging a new demographic, demographic of audience members? And what is the content that they want to experience? How are we honoring classical orchestral music and how we're doing that. And and also, how are we introducing orchestra music to a, a younger population? 
Um, the reality is that in, I believe in Delaware and Grant County, between the two of them, there is one school left with an orchestra. I believe it is Muncie Burris. There's not a public school left. I don't believe in either of those counties with an orchestra program. So for those of us that grew up in public schools, large public schools that did have orchestra programs, even if I was not participating in the orchestra, I was experiencing it. It was among my student peers. I was familiar with it. That is now not something that our students are experiencing. And so what are we doing to introduce in through educational programs that we are offering? And then also what are we doing to create programs like we have coming up this spring that are bringing in new audiences so that they can experience truly the beauty and magic of orchestral music, maybe for the first time and building that audience for the future. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it's certainly, you know, as I said, I mean, it's a challenge for any live performing arts organization. Uh, I think it seems like after the pandemic, you know, folks had kind of shifted into that cocooning mode and they don't necessarily go out as much as they used to. So that, I think, is one of the the factors that is challenging in, in your role, right, is to figure out what are we going to do to motivate folks to leave their home but, right. but also, one of the things I've seen in other cities that I thought was really interesting is occasionally they would do these little pop-ups, right? So maybe it would be a quartet uh, right. or a trio would unexpectedly show up somewhere, some public venue. And the thing I've learned about that is you can do that if you have funding to support it, right? Because the musicians, this is what they do for a living. So uh, thinking about those kind of things, what kind of things are you thinking about at the orchestra to try to grow your audience, to be in places where you need to be? What kind of things are you that you can share right now that are, are yeah, you planning? That's really the center of everything we're talking about right now as an organization is, yes, we want to continue to provide these, these orchestra concerts that the community is accustomed to, right? Uh, but we want to grow the audience for that. And perhaps the easiest way to do that is to be providing little opportunities to experience like a taste of the orchestra all over the place. For instance, we did the Yorktown Farmers Market. We've participated in the teacher appreciation event at Minatrista. Those are the ways that we can start to maybe more deeply engage in the community in a one-on-one -on -one and 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 uh, like you being able to come physically into contact with the musicians in a way that's different than entering into a large performance venue, sitting in your seats, watching them on stage, they leave, you leave, and there's no real close experience with that. I think that is the future of how Orchestra Indiana succeeds. And it's my goal to see where and how we can create those opportunities all over mm -hmm. the communities that we serve. Now, speaking of opportunities like that, we have a big one coming up in April, coinciding sort of with the big eclipse event. The day before the actual eclipse, you all are doing something pretty large. We sure are. You know, I, in my own life, I am really focused on providing opportunities for experiences and making memories with my family and my children. And with a once in a lifetime thing like the eclipse happening and this area being able to build energy among a lot of different people and organizations to create an entire weekend of events, I'm so excited for Orchestra Indiana to be able to be a part of that. And so on Sunday evening, April 7th at 5 p.m. at Minatrista, Orchestra Indiana will present Eclipsed, A Night of Music. And 
that in my mind, I envisioned as being this really fun, I really, really value fun and really fun thing for all ages to come and do where there's food trucks and you can engage with the local arts and culture organizations and you bring your blankets and you wear your most comfortable clothing and you sit around and you you eat some food with your family and you listen to this music. And it just is a way to celebrate this once in a lifetime event with your people uh, and a way for the orchestra maybe to be exposed to an entirely new population of future audience members. Now, you and I have had this conversation a lot. We have. The, we the, have quite a bit. The uh, early April weather could potentially, right? Tell me, what is your projection for what the weather is going to be on April? Well, you 7th? know, I have, I have, <laughs> I have spent a lot of time manifesting that it is going to be one of those absolutely breathtakingly beautiful days in East Central Indiana. I'm thinking 72, partly cloudy. The tulips on Minatrista's campus are in full bloom, and uh, it's maybe one of those first Sunday evenings where families are out with their dogs and their children enjoying the weather and enjoying live music. Now, if that is not the case, there are plans <laughs> uh, to make sure that we can still uh, have this event and, and Ball State University is uh, allowing us to utilize Pruis to do that in the event of poor weather. And and as, I mean, many anyone that is connected with orchestral music in any way knows that really anything 60 degrees or under is is not a not not a possibility for the musicians and and their instruments, which really are are their most important tool that they have. Uh, so we will be watching that very closely. But we are going to believe for everyone involved that that is going to be one of those most beautiful Indiana April weekends that we can all look forward to. Speaking it into the universe. We are speaking it, there you go. That's right. We are speaking <laughs> it into the universe. <laughs> well, Katie, thank you for for joining us today. We're looking forward to the eclipsed. Uh, concert, and we're also looking forward to more from Orchestra Indiana out in the public. Thank you. We have, it, it's going to be quite an evening, and with so much community support, including Ball State Public Media, Minatrista, the Muncie Delaware County Visitors Bureau, the city of Muncie, and so many more. This is not something to miss. It is going to be truly an incredible evening, and from what I have seen, it looks like we will send it off at the end with uh, none other than the Imperial March from Star Wars to lead <laughs> us into the next day and the big the big day, which is the actual eclipse. So we hope to see everyone there. And, and one of the, uh, I, am I allowed to say one of the pieces of music you're doing? Oh, yeah. I'm, I, a, I'm My happy. favorite, one of my personal favorites is Stardust. So I was excited when I saw that on the list. Yes, I, I and I'll share a couple of them. There's a... Of course, going to be Moon River. Uh, you are the sunshine of my life. Um, and then as we send off with the Imperial March, there's not any better way we could send off into what Monday brings, which is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, thank you, Katie. It's thank great you. talking to you. We'll see you in April. All righty. See you then. That was IPR's Phil Hoffman talking to Katie Morgan Perez. Executive Director of Orchestra Indiana. Orchestra Indiana is an underwriter of IPR. This week, we continue our series of conversations with artists who've chosen to make their homes in unlikely places with a trip to Door County, Wisconsin. 
Door County is arguably one of the most beautiful places in the Midwest, with over 3,000 square miles of hiking trails, lakeshore, and natural beauty. But did you know that Door County is also home to several professional theaters, offering full seasons of everything from new plays to Shakespeare? Jacob Jansen is the artistic director of one of those theaters. He's the Jackie and Steve Kane artistic director of Third Avenue Playworks in Sturgeon Bay, a professional theater offering a full season of shows in a place that many of us might consider to be a small town. Hi, Jacob. I do know uh, from our our own uh, uh, friendship that you did live in Chicago, obviously, for grad school, and that you've also lived in New York. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Did you live in New York before you went to grad school, or was Chicago first and then New York? Uh, no, I lived in, well, uh, <laughs> just, just tell us about your journey. <laughs> yeah. What brought you to sure. Sturgeon Bay? <laughs> yeah. So I, I went to undergrad in Wisconsin. Um, I, I got a BFA in acting at university of Wisconsin, Stevens point, really lovely little school mm-hmm. in the middle of a bunch of potato fields where the only thing to do was to rehearse. And so right. <laughs> that's what we did all the time. Um, which was great for me. Um, and then when I, when I graduated, um, I always kind of knew that New York was the thing for me. Um, I really have never had much interest in LA just because I don't really like cars very much. Sorry, LA. Um, so I thought I was going to move to New York and I, I ended up getting a job, uh, at a restaurant in Cape Cod, uh, with the, sole point of logic being that that is closer to New York than Wisconsin is. And <laughs> while I was there, I met a gentleman who was the you know, deputy director of a large living history museum uh, based in 17th century history. And they wanted to offer Shakespeare as part of their public programming. Mm-hmm. And we became very close friends. And he just said, hey, how would you feel about running a Shakespeare company at this museum? Um, and I foolishly said yes. Uh, I had no idea what that entailed, sure. but I produced you know two seasons of uh, Shakespeare for them, and that led me to really starting to work in classical theater for a few years. Um, from that museum, I ended up in Washington D.C. at the Folger, um, where I spent a year, uh, you know, doing like a year-long internship program with them, mm-hmm. uh, and followed that up <laughs> by moving. Oh, just across the hill over to Shakespeare Theater um, to do another year-long fellowship, Shakespeare producing. Um, and then I ended up being a producer at Studio Theater for two seasons. You know, I, I, I very much moved from being an actor very quickly. I, I thought that I was going to be, you know, up on stage, but I found that being a director was the thing that really, really got me going. Mm-hmm. It sort of scratched this uh, intellectual itch that performing just never really did for me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Performing always feels like a, a, a being an athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're going out there to make the catch and win the game, mm-hmm. but being the director, it's, there's something a bit more expansive, right? It is a bit of performance, but it is also this sort of like research component and curatorial component. Mm-hmm. Um, and world so building. I found myself, yeah, world, yeah, world building, building, truly, and, and you know the That's whole right. arc of the story. So you're not just the athlete; you're seeing the whole field. That's right. And I found myself in all of these producing positions. And I'll be honest; I was a little frustrated with that. I, I, I always wanted to be the person making the shows, but I think it, it took me a while to recognize just how important 
the producing part was to my actual experience because I learned how to make a play by watching other people do it constantly. Right. There's no way to learn how to direct a play other than by doing it or by helping somebody else do it. And the producer's job is to make the thing happen. And I learned more about uh, how to direct a play or in many cases, how not to direct a play by being in those positions because you you see the sort of pitfalls mm-hmm. um, or the, the kind of blind alleys that sometimes you can get um, stuck in. So I spent a number of years in Washington, D.C. and then um, decided that it was time for me to real, you know, focus back on my own artistic practice and um, ended up in uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there was a weird little interlude where I was in New York for about six months, um, but then got you know called back to Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of bounced around the East Coast for about seven years. Right, um, and this is this is I I think a constant theme with with uh, you know myself as well as folks as uh, folks we've been talking to is that there's this journey. Right, you go to these various places and you do all these things and. And, you know, part of that journey will take you someplace else and then someplace else. Mm -hmm. And particularly when you're beginning your career, a lot of that is also about building your network, right? You mentioned that you knew this guy who then said you should go do this and then wound up kind of in these in these places that maybe you just didn't anticipate, right? Oh, absolutely. I I had no had no way of knowing that I would end up in Washington, Mm D.C. And I'm so glad I did. I loved my time in D.C. It is an incredible arts community. It's the second largest you know, theater community in the country. Mm-hmm. It's enormous. Yes, it is. There's um, a lot out there. <laughs> there's a lot out there and a lot of really exciting stuff. And, and, and part of what was fun about D.C. too is that, you know, in many ways, it is a sleepy southern town. But in other ways, it is a international city, right? Mm-hmm. You've got embassies from all over the world there, ambassadors, cultural attaches, who are all clamoring to get their artists to work, you know, in American cities. And so I had the opportunity to work with all sorts of people from all over the world, just through being in that city. Right. So then you went to graduate school in Chicago at Mm -hmm. DePaul. And then did you immediately go to New York after that? Or did you hang out in Chicago for a bit? I hung out in Chicago for maybe another year or so, um, but I had met uh, Andrus Nichols, uh, who was one of the founders of Bedlam Theater, working on a project at the Goodman. And she was in the process of founding a new theater company in New York. And we had spent a lot of nights in the basement of the Goodman in the dressing rooms, just talking about projects and art and the stuff that we love to make. And we became very close through that process. So when the new company was being formed, um, you know, she called me and said, would you be interested in being our producer? And I instantly jumped at the chance because if you've ever mm. seen Andrus Nichols on, up on stage, mm. she is just incandescent. I would watch the lady read a phone book. <laughs> I would be completely enwrapped, <laughs> oh, right? I like she's that. just yeah. incredible. Yeah. And she's just got a really beautiful sort of sense for community. She's mm-hmm. always thinking about how do we uplift the community of artists that we work with? How do we really serve the community in our audience? And I would have been a fool not to go out there and to work with them. And um, we got we had one big splashy show and then the pandemic stopped us dead <laughs> in the tracks, right? Um, As it we did, did Terra Firma. for most of us. <laughs> yeah, we, we did Terra Firma and it was really great. Um, and we had three other shows that were in process you know, we were just signing papers to do another project 
you know, renting a space. And I think the next day after we got the paperwork, you know, the world mm-hmm. shut down. Yeah. And for about a year, no one knew what was going to happen, and particularly in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that year, you know, my wife and I just decided it was time to get out of the city that, you know, New York is is not a great place um, to have a pandemic. No. You know, if you're, if you're thinking of places <laughs> to just like hang out during the pandemic, New York is among the least fun. Um. So you didn't you didn't just leave New York. I mean, you left New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Door County is beautiful. And I'm, I'm, you know, privileged to have had the opportunity to work with you and to work with Third Avenue. Um, but it's, it's a, Sturgeon Bay is a small town. So why Sturgeon Bay? Where, why, what took you there? Uh, well, I had the very good fortune of becoming the artistic director of Third Avenue Playworks which is a small regional theater here in Door County. Door County, for those who are kind of unaware, is the peninsula that sticks out into Lake Michigan. So beautiful bluffs rising straight out of the water, gorgeous parks, and then um, one of the densest uh, arts communities in the country. Because the year-round population in Door County is only 30,000 people, but there are four professional theaters, uh, a really great you know, performing arts center, a couple of art schools, a folk art school, mm. like uh, a number of classical music organizations. It's really an incredible arts community here. So, so when you told uh, friends or colleagues that you were leaving to go to Wisconsin, did you face any kind of a stigma for that? Or did people say, you're crazy, don't do it? Well, nothing overt. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think in the arts, people recognize that opportunities like this are pretty rare. Um, the the chance to, you know, program a season, that's something that, you know, very few folks have the opportunity to do in, you know, any good year. So the chance to run a theater with my own building was an incredible opportunity. And I think that most folks recognize that, you know, out of hand. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think there are some folks who were thinking like, why would you leave New York? You're just getting established here. Right. You're just starting to build up a really great network. Um, stick it out a little while longer and you'll be able to do, you know, things that you never dreamed of. Well, to that end, I will say that Though I think some of the some incredible art is made in New York, like truly incredible art is made there. Mm-hmm. There is how do I put this? Incredible art is made in New York. But <laughs> the number of people that you end up serving while you make that art, like compared to the total population, is vanishingly small. Right. Right. You're making art for like you know, one thousandth of one tenth of one percent of the people who you know call New York City home. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a, a a friend of mine who produced there for a while and said that you you do art for your friends and your friends of friends and your friends of friends of friends, and that's about it. <laughs> that it's very that's difficult right. with so much happening to uh, you know, to to attract those audiences that we were talking about earlier, which are people who, you know, may not be a part of the community, or maybe this is their first play. I mean, that's not, that's very, very difficult to do in a, a community like New York. Right. And so when I make a play here at Third Avenue Playworks, 
the number of people in my community that I serve is actually pretty remarkably high, right? Mm -hmm. So Sturgeon Bay, the biggest city in the county, has about 9,000 people living in it. And, you know, of course, there's a huge tourist trade that happens here every summer. But we sell the majority of our our tickets to people who are actually local, who live here for Mm -hmm. some portion of the year. And last year, we served over 7,200 people with our performances. Now, in a town of less than 10,000, that means I'm hitting almost everybody mm-hmm. in my community. That level of engagement and that level of impact is kind of unparalleled. There are mm-hmm. very few institutions in this country that have as close a relationship with the audience that they serve. And I think that that is something that we all have to be thinking about as theater makers, is how well do we serve our community? Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, the United States does not really have a theater-going culture. Right, right. right? There are some people who do, right? And they Mm -hmm. love it. But the vast majority of people in this country rarely see a play. They might see one play their entire life. Mm -hmm. And so I want to work really hard to change that. I want to make sure that absolutely every single person in our community feels welcome, feels like this is their theater and that this is for them. Because I think we do, we do a really good job at making it feel exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think in the past that may have been what our audiences wanted, but I don't think that's what they want anymore. I think they want to feel at home. So, so let's talk about then as a, as an artistic director, knowing that, and I, I love hearing you say that I kind of got chills because that's why most of us get into this too, I, I think. And then there's, you know, then there's discussion about legitimacy and all of that, which we'll get to in a little bit, but how do you program a season then for, for that community, the community that you serve? Well, that's certainly, there's a learning curve. I mean, I'm, pretty new to it. Mm -hmm. I have a hypothesis about who this audience is. And we program a series of plays and musicals or, you know, experiences, whatever they might be. And we see what their level of interest is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think the thing that we, I, I have learned in the last, you know, two years is that coming out of the moment that we came out of, out of the pandemic, that people were not as introspective as um, they had been in the past. They weren't, they didn't want to go into the deep, dark places, Mm -hmm. you know, they wanted to come and have a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that may be, that may just be Wisconsin, that may be Door County, that may be the fact that we are, you know, we are a summer theater because that is when the audience is here. Uh, and even though they're not on vacation, maybe they feel like they're on vacation and who wants to go have a, a, a long, dark night of the soul in the theater sure. while you're on vacation. I don't know. I, I would, but I would too. I think that's... I'm built different. Um, but, uh, what we are figuring out though, is people want to be surprised, mm-hmm. right? I think there was, there was a theory that was, was predominant in our field, right? That like, you got to trot out the old chestnuts and, make sure that you've got a few things in there that everybody knows because they'll sell tickets. And I think that is, you know, that is mostly true, right? Mm-hmm. That if you put a, a great Neil Simon play in your season, yeah, you'll, you'll sell some tickets. Right. But, but the thing is, is I don't think most people know those plays either. Right. They just, 
think they know those plays. I was like, maybe they did 50 years ago. Maybe it was, yeah, you know, they had right, much more exactly. information about it. But yeah. Whereas now, I think if you program something that is unexpected, but a ton of fun, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, exciting in some way, compelling in some way, audiences will show up. Because I think the the desire for pre-awareness of a play or an experience, though that is very helpful, doesn't necessarily sell your tickets. I think consistency, I think quality, and I think that, that care and thoughtfulness about how you are serving your community ultimately are the things that will sell you your tickets. And then... I think making sure that you are investing in your artists mm-hmm. because I have a theory that the biggest driver for ticket sales are the artists. Mm-hmm. Imagine Brad Pitt is in a movie. Most movies that Brad Pitt are, uh, you know, that Brad Pitt is in are sold on the simple fact that Brad Pitt is in that film. That's right. Nobody knows what that movie's going to be about. <laughs> Nobody cares. Yep. They're just going to go see Brad Pitt be incredibly handsome. Right. <laughs> and, if you think, if you think Brad Pitt is handsome, sure. <laughs> whatever. I mean, it works for a lot of people, all right? Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that theater audiences are kind of the same way. So the thing that I'm working hard on is making sure to carefully cultivate relationships between the audience and these artists, be they performers, uh, directors, playwrights, designers, that they start to, you know, have a feeling for who that person might be. Because I think when you start to do that, you start to make a more durable bond between the theater and the audience, mm-hmm. that they they feel like they have a, a longer term relationship with the thing that's happening up on stage. Because the honest truth is that those plays that we've done, we may never do again. Mm-hmm. Those huge hits, they probably will never come back. But the person who will come back is that artist. Right. And we really ought to do more to take care of that relationship than simply trying to hypothesize what the the next great title is for the season. Mm-hmm. I think it's about the people more than anything else. It's not about the building as much as it is the the people who work there and the people who perform there and the people who are the storytellers that you can come to expect. Uh, That's right. You know, will will give you an an amazing experience, right? Absolutely. And local artists, the artists who are here, can make incredible performances. They can make incredible experiences, and those folks need to be honored and cherished, just the same as you know any of the 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 big names or whatever of the the big cities. Mm-hmm. That these folks are making great art happen in these small communities. You know, I'm so incredibly proud of the work that we did on Carry Your Heart With Me, the show that we did at the beginning of our year Mm -hmm. that you wrote, um, you know, as (laughs) part of our World Wisconsin Festival, of course, (laughs) because, you know, we used Karen Estrada, who's a a Wisconsin actor, to do the role. And she Um, was really just phenomenal. I mean, watching her work, I learned more about my play than I knew (laughs) going into it because she's so, so good. It's so specific and so detailed and absolutely on the level of any artist that you're going to get from, you know, either of the coasts. Mm-hmm. But she's here. She's local. Right, right. And I think that it's it's easy to think that just because it's out east or west, it's better. It's not. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we really want to make, a, we are making a commitment to, is uh, we have made a commitment to produce a play by a Wisconsin writer every season going forward. We are wow. doing that. Good for because, you. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. And we're doing that because playwriting, I think, for too long has been dominated by New York City, right? A lot of playwrights live there. Mm-hmm. We have been told that to be a serious actor, you need to live in New York and you need to chase Broadway or you need to live in LA and chase Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Or to be a, a serious playwright, you need to live in New York and chase Broadway. Chasing that as the the pinnacle of the field, as the sort of the holy grail, I think that discounts the, the simple fact that there are audiences absolutely everywhere who are hungry for art, who deserve the same degree of rigor and care and thoughtfulness and who are excited when they get to see it, right? And who are so appreciative of that level of care and rigor and artists as well, right? The artists are also here Mm -hmm. and you don't have to live in a bed bug infested, you know, five floor (laughs) walk up in New York to be an actor. Mm -hmm. You can live in a, beautiful place like door county and get paid to make art it can happen yeah i'm telling you right now because i know it is happening right and we're working hard to make sure that it can happen for more people the united way of door county funded third avenue playworks last year for the very first time it was the we were the first arts organization ever to be funded by the united way we were the first organization ever to be funded by the united way because we committed to providing low and no cost tickets to our community to make sure that arts were accessible to everyone. Because I think for a lot of folks, they look at a, you know, a $38 ticket, which, you know, by most theater standards is pretty affordable. And they say, that's too much for me. Mm -hmm. And then they know that that art is not for them. Right. Exactly. So if we create pathways for people to get into our buildings then we can make those positive impacts. Then that's, you know, those health benefits, those social benefits can be, you can accrue to everyone in our community. And the United Way, when I told them that I think that, you know, theaters should be less like social clubs and more like libraries, they got so pumped up about that. That's because awesome. <laughs> I think cultural institutions have to serve our community in the way that the library does, where everyone feels welcome, everyone feels at home. Mm-hmm. That is our job. That's what we're here for. That's awesome. That's incredible. Um, I don't think I can top that, frankly. Hey, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Of course. That was our conversation with Jacob Jansen. The Jackie and Steve Kane Artistic Director of Third Avenue Playworks in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. I'm Jen Blackmer. And I'm Kara Duquette. In this week's installment of What Are You Working On? Kara explores the world of textiles. Hi, I'm Joanna Darda. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a uh, creative and community engaged volunteer. Um, I live here in Muncie, Indiana, where I live and create and dream. Excellent. Joanna, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yes. So um, 
I am really into textiles, so I love sewing, quilting, and I'm kind of always trying to like use every little bit of what I have. So I'm always thinking of like how I'm going to use my scraps and all this collection of fabric and stuff. Um, but I actually just went to this great symposium this past weekend in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, it was called the Rust Belt Fiber Shed Symposium. Oh. And this concept of a fiber shed is similar to a watershed. So like a regional um, kind of natural resource. And it's about place-based textiles. Um, so this kind of uh, why do we create in the Midwest fits really well into this weekend I just had. Um, and it was all about kind of how art, uh, regional production and environmentalism work together. So we heard from shepherds who raise sheep in the Midwest and people who grow indigo for fabric dyeing. Uh, people who grow flax for linen. And then we heard from designers um, and also people who are thinking about, you know, what what do we do with our clothing, um, our material scraps at the end of their life cycle? Um, so it's really this kind of cool intersection of art, nature, um, kind of shaping society and envisioning new ways of doing things and new ways of connecting with each other in the world around us. So I am like buzzing because that's all my favorite stuff combined into one <laughs> realm. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So uh, people were talking about what they do and uh, was there, um, did people bring some of these items to this event? Yeah, so there were speakers um, who kind of talked about their work and then there was a fashion show um, from this project called One Year, One Outfit where folks completely made a garment or an outfit from um, items that they grew and things that they made and dyed themselves. So it was the coolest. And then there were demonstrations. Um, so I got really into this a demonstration about how to process uh, the flax plant for fiber. So flax um, is what's used to make linen fabric but it can also be used in like handmade paper and things like that. Um, so that's going to be my new like gardening and art obsession, I think. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. Do, now, do you, where do you work on your art? I work in my house. So do you have a home studio or what is, can you? Yes, I have a little home studio sewing room, but my projects tend to also take over the entire house. <laughs> <laughs> As they do. Yes, I completely and, understand yeah, that. One hobby, there's a million, like there's the sewing and the gardening and the seed collecting. So everything's kind of everywhere. But I do have my own space here. Well, is is it possible for you to walk us through a project that you're working on right now? I mean, you've given us a really good idea of all the things that you love and how they kind mm -hmm. of come together. Yeah, I am. Um, I've been learning to make garments. So I am I'm working on sewing some clothes and kind of getting the hang of my machine. Um, I'm actually, the shirt that I'm wearing today is something I'm working on. It's put together enough to wear, but it still needs hemmed and trimmed and things like that. So learning to kind of make my own clothes and also kind of dreaming about what I'm going to grow in my garden this year to like make cool crafts out of. I That makes me think of like, what is something that you do to get into the creative mindset? I mean, for me, gardening helps me get there, but I don't utilize 
those things in my work. Yeah, I think um, I I get really like kind of sparked from my curiosity. So like I've kind of had these interests of sewing and plants my whole life, but the more I learn about something, the more I get excited and kind of sparks this like exploration, like, oh my gosh, who knew that you could take these little flax flowers and use the stems to make this thing and you can take your coreopsis flowers and dye your fabric. I'm always kind of researching and thinking and something will spark like as I'm learning something new and it's like, oh, I have to figure this out. I have to start this project. I have to like, you know, put these connections together and see where it goes. That's one of the things I also love about art. The Sometimes you have no idea where you're going to end up. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say you draw inspiration from where you live? Absolutely. And what brings that inspiration to you? I am inspired by um, the people in our community. I don't think I would be as happy as I am here without our creative community um, and learning from other artists and seeing what other people are doing. And um, I'm inspired by my neighbors. I'm inspired by kind of our landscape and the natural beauty around us. Um, you know, the bugs that are native here and the butterflies and um, just kind of the people here and our physical environment. Mm-hmm. I totally understand that. I I was wondering if there's anywhere that we could see some of your work in the community at this time. At this time, um, I kind of post things um, that I'm working on on my Instagram. Great. Um, it's probably the best place. That's J-O-A-N-N-A underscore D-A-R-D-A. That's right. All right. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today about your art? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think I'm just um, coming back from meeting all these people who are like so excited about plants and composting and fabric. And um, I'm really excited to kind of dig into this next chapter. I'm real. My phase of what I'm working on right now is really just like research, learning, um, getting really excited about what I can do next in my yard and in my sewing room. Uh, That's so I'm glad great. I'm to talk to you now. I'm like riding this wave of excitement and inspiration. That's the best when you're with a group of <laughs> like-minded people who are doing cool things. Oh my gosh. You're, you're making me want to compost. <laughs> <laughs> we can be that. We can be those people who get excited about talking about compost. Yep. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Kara. It was great to talk to you. So this week, there are a lot of exciting things happening around East Central Indiana. There are always a lot of exciting things happening in East Central Indiana. Let's get to it. It is true. All right. Uh, Saturday, the 10th of February, Museum Docent Tour, The Moments Before at DOMA, which is the David Owsley Museum of Art. Explore moments preceding catastrophes. Meet in the Sculpture Court at 2.30 p.m. This tour is free and open to the public with no registration required. That sounds fascinating. 
Yes. Also, you might want to check out The Unexpected Guest by Agatha Christie in University Theater. Tickets are available through the College of Fine Arts box office located at Sursa Hall in person or by phone at 765-285-8749 or online. Agatha Christie's having a bit of a moment, right, with some of the movies and stuff that's been happening. This is going to be an awesome production. Friday, February 16th. At Emmons Auditorium, Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar, arrangements of contemporary gospel, musical theater, and rich original compositions. Tickets are free, but tickets are required. You can get those on the website, bsu.edu backslash Emmons. Also Friday, February 9th, Solar Superstorms. You can come to the planetarium and learn about solar superstorms. Also, uh, there are shows at 3.30 p.m. One World, One Sky, Big Bird's Adventure. 5 p.m., Eclipse, The Sun Revealed. Oh, lots of eclipse prep. Eclipse stuff happening. happening. It's happening. (laughs) And Superstorms again at 6.30 p.m. And for those of you who are unaware, there is an eclipse, total solar eclipse of the sun. Yes. Muncie, Indiana is going to be right in the middle of that puppy. That is at April. That is on April 8th. So we've got some time to plan, but I'm just telling you, I'm a little excited by that. So am I. <laughs> Uh, Okay, moving off campus this week, uh, Honeywell Arts and Entertainment in Wabash, Indiana, it has a two-pack ticket offer for February, and included in that are several options. On the 10th of February, The Princess Bride with a star, Carrie Elways. And what I understand, he's going to be talking about the movie. He'll actually be there. So if you're a Carrie Elways fan as I am, you should totally check that out. As you wish. As you wish. (laughs) On the 13th of February, the Fort Wayne Ballet. On the 14th of February, Mr. Big. Also on the 14th of February, Michael Palisak, comedian and Wabash native. On the 16th of February, a show called Arrival, The Music of ABBA. And this will also be at Emmons Auditorium on the 18th. So you can see it in Wabash on the 16th, or you can see it here at in Muncie on the 18th. And then on the 17th of February, Lou Graham, who was the original singer in the band Foreigner, that totally takes me back. So you can get a two-pack of tickets to any two of these events. Head to the website, honeywellarts.org backslash two. That's T-W-O. And in Yorktown on Saturday, February 10th, you might want to go to the Yorktown Farm and Artisan Market. It's at 1901 South Tiger Drive in Yorktown, Indiana. There's so much going on. I'm there's just and it's in the middle of winter. So there's just I East Central Indiana is such a great place to be. And I know a lot of these events uh, may sound new to you, and that's one of the reasons why Pop of Culture is here for you. So please check out something this week and enjoy. Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's arts partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. And that's our show. Pop of Culture is produced by Luke Jones. It was hosted this week by myself, Jen Blackmer, and Kara Duquette, and is a production of Indiana Public Radio on the campus of Ball State University.